0: Hello and welcome to the Cinementalist podcast for Cinementalist.com. My name's Andy, his name's Liam, and here we are again. How are you doing, matey? Not dead. Not dead indeed. In fact, let me let you into a little secret here. Liam is back in the room. I am indeed. The UK government has decided that we're allowed to form a bubble. So
1: whether I'll still be not dead by next week (laughs) is another matter. (laughs) If we're going down, we're going down together. Absolutely, mate.
0: Yeah. Yeah, So back in the room, and I forgot what you look like
1: behind um, pixelation. Am I still, like, am I not horrendous or middling or... You look beautiful, mate. I look, do I look pixie? Yeah, you look absolutely stunning.
0: Oh, good, thanks. It's so good to see you again. Loads of stuff to get through, as usual, this week. I think we're just going to get straight into it because I have not prepared an intro. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, cinemantalist on top of their game, as usual. Uh, we do have two films this week um, that have stereotypically uh, female names. Indeed. There is Becky. And there is Shirley. I'll leave it up to you as to which you do first. Right,
1: well, I'll get um, Becky out of the way first. Becky, which is the new film from directors Jonathan Millett and Carrie Murnion, however you pronounce that name. I don't apologise if I fucked it up. (laughs) Yeah, it was released on Video On Demand on the 5th of June. And the title character, Becky, played by Lulu Wilson, is a young girl of about 12, 13. She's a middle schooler. And essentially, she is a, what you'd call a stroppy little moobag. It's not really that hard to understand why her mother passed away a year ago from cancer. She doesn't have a very good time at school. Her relationship with her dad, Jeff, who is played by Joel McHale for some reason, is uh, quite fractured, even though he's a comes across as a very loving parent who tries his best to, like, give, sort of give her a stable home environment and dotes on her, but she's having none of it. She's, you know, typical teenage angst, very stroppy, very obnoxiously combative and passive-aggressive, abrasive, what have you, what have you. Very unlikable character. Typical right? teenage girl. Yeah. Right? yeah. Well, yes, typical teenage girl. I think teenage boys, and I think too. That's, right? what, that's with a, the typical performance of a teenager, I can understand why they're, why there is going to be some combative element to their personality. But I don't know if it's Wilson. Wilson's betrayal, but Becky just comes across as uniformly unlikable. So her and her father, Jeff, they go away to their lake hunt, their lake, lake hunt, lake front, sorry, huh? lake front home for a weekend getaway where Jeff brings along his current girlfriend and her young son and announces that he and her are to be engaged, which causes Becky to go into a tremendous strop and go off into her treehouse or little fort, whatever it is, in the woods, to have a sulk. And while all, this, all of this is happening, a group of neo-Nazi convicts escape from a prison van that's transporting them to another facility. They uh, they murder the guards transporting them, and then they also murder a family on the road in order to obtain their car. And the neo Nazi prison gang led by Dominic, played by Kevin James. Yeah. You know Kevin James's? I do indeed. Paul Blart, Mall Cop, Kevin James. I was trying to think earlier of a good <clears throat> Kevin James performance. And do you know what? I struggled. Do you know why? It's because it doesn't exist. <laughs> it's like unicorns. <laughs> yeah, they steal this family's car. They brutally and pointlessly kill this. Five and two kids, even though that takes place off screen for the most part. And they arrive at the lake house and they take Jeff, his girlfriend, Kayla, and Kayla's son, Ty, hostage. And Dominic states that he is looking for a key. It's a strange key that has a a symbol on it that is rather similar to a Nordic rune. There's some emphasis on tattoos and symbols in this film, as Kevin James has on the back of his... Bald head and enormous swastika tattoo.
0: Is this a sort of... Uh, I know right-wing groups sort of appropriate a lot of Nordic... Yes, sort of they do. Yeah. into that. Yes, right? there's
1: a lot of Nordic uh, mysticism and you know Norse pagan uh, symbolism in uh, a lot of uh, far-right white supremacist
0: circles. So I haven't seen this film, but I'm getting onto my TV of the week
1: in a bit. Um, this is going to be a very Norse and Viking podcast. Oh, okay. So... Yeah. Well hopefully the you know your variant are the more nicer and acceptable well, variant of I f- Nordic. I found out a
0: little <laughs> while ago that my ancestors were Norse and I've wanted to get Norse tattoos. And but there is that association that if you get a Norse like a runic
1: tattoo, I think in the US at least that often is tied into the far <laughs> right. They won't kind be of able thing. to decide if- Well, you got it validated by genealogy, but it's going to be is he a cultural appropriator or is he just a Nazi? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I I really like the design and everything, but I'm not sure I'm comfortable with that association. I can understand the apprehension, yeah. But uh, Dominic is looking for this key. He makes it very clear to Jeff and Kayla and Ty that people are going to start getting very badly hurt, if not worse, if somebody doesn't bring him this goddamn key. Meanwhile, Becky's out in the woods having a little sulk uh, with her dog. Uh, that's following around there's a lot of dogs in the film as well what, what, what's the name of that breed is it Cunny also Canny? They, they look like a bit sort of, they look like larger staffies oh right okay yep. I, think, I think it's Cunny also or, or whatever the hell it is is
0: that because Kevin James was famously
1: a zookeeper um I don't believe so it <laughs> doesn't it, it, there, no, there, it's in his contract there has to be some sort of animal <clears throat> well I, I didn't get any sort of fourth wall breaking references to the fact that Kevin James was a zookeeper and a terrible yeah <laughs> But um, he deduces that Becky is somewhere on the property and using a walkie-talkie, there's a walkie-talkie inside the lake house and there's also a walkie-talkie inside her little fort. He informs her that he knows that she has the key because he cannot find it upon initial inspection. He checks for it in a room and it's not there and he throws a wobbly. And he is wobbly. (laughs) And um, (laughs) while he's wobbling, he says to her, You bring me this key, otherwise I'm going to start hurting your dad and I'm going to start hurting his girlfriend. I'm going to start hurting the little boy here as well. So it's your choice. They're going to start enduring some very nasty, unavoidable pain. Will you give me the key? Me and my men will be on the road. you never see us again. But Becky doesn't want to play this game. And this is where the film takes a completely mad, nonsensical trajectory into uber-violent Home Alone. And Becky transforms from a stroppy, annoying middle schooler into basically pint-sized female John Rambo with no convincing explanation whatsoever and there is nothing ironic or funny or endearing in a, you know, an urban fairy tale-like sense Mm -hmm. about it. It is just dreadful. (laughs) And you know what, the most frustrating thing is, and I mentioned this in the write up as well, it started out certain little facets of it. I thought this could actually go down a fairly promising road. You know, it's, you, you have the, not, the Nazi breakout, they initially seem quite menacing. It's rather well shot. The performance of Joel McHale's not too bad. Lulu Wilson's very annoying, but I was prepared initially to overlook that. But it just goes right down the pan. Kevin James as a villain. You are having a laugh, honestly. <laughs> he is not menacing. His performance is very stilted. They give him dialogue, which I know, you know, I interpreted it. This is supposed to be menacing, disturbing, hateful dialogue. But his delivery is just so flat and I say ostentatious, sort of like solemnly ostentatious. When he first sees Kayla and Ty, because I didn't mention John McHale's girlfriend, Kayla, and the son Ty. They're both black. And so they come when Kevin James and this comes through the door, he sees them and he mumbles something about um oh, your your dog here is mixed spread. My my dog is a pure Rottweiler. And then he actually says the German name for Rottweiler. So you know this guy is a Nazi through and through. Oh sure. Yeah. But it, it just it doesn't work. It really doesn't work. It was it was painful to watch because the villains were not they were not satisfyingly antagonistic. They were annoying. When you have to spend 100 minutes with villains who are annoying, yeah. surrounded by protagonistic characters who don't really inf- imbue you with much reason at all to care about what happens to them, and this is all in the midst of ludicrous cartoon violence that doesn't fit the atmosphere or narrative development in any way, shape, or form. I really didn't like it. And it's um it's one of the VOD releases that is getting a lot of hype and, you know, a lot of pump at the moment. and lot of people say, oh, have you seen Becky? Have you seen Becky? No. You're wasting your life if you see Becky. Don't do it. <laughs>
0: it's interesting. We discussed on one of the premium podcasts recently, Killer Joe, mm-hmm. and the way it's sort of uh, really uh, changed the public perception of Matthew McConaughey as an actor. Yes. This thing of the, all of a sudden he goes from – likeable, goofy comedy guy to being able to do very dark, very interesting, very violent characters. And that seems to have started off a trend where actors that are known for goofy roles are now trying to do a dark, serious villain to add some credibility to their CV. I guess it seems like Kevin James might be trying to do that here. And by the sounds
1: of it, it really hasn't worked at all. He hasn't succeeded. This is the problem. The problem is that Kevin James really looks the part. It's just that when he opens his mouth... And delivers lines. (laughs) Yeah, acting. Yeah, the 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 crux of his appearance, it all goes to shit. Mm -hmm. It it, uh, irredeemably. I can't understand any of the positive feedback that this film is getting personally. It's not getting overwhelmingly positive feedback. I have to say I've seen some very negative reviews of this. The reviews are, to be generous, the reviews are middling. There's been some praise for it, but it's extraordinarily faint. But the majority of the feedback that I've come across is outright negative, and that's that's not surprising to me. In the it just it just doesn't work. It doesn't, I wasn't at no point in the film. It was, it was it, again, it was another one of those films where I can't wait for this to be over. I can't wait for this to be over. Oh look, look at how shocking they're trying to be with this gore that doesn't fit in there in any yeah. way whatsoever. See, the violence in Becky is more extreme, and I'm glad you mentioned Killer Joe because Killer Joe has scenes of incredibly explicit. Some would argue rather over-the-top violence, moderate violence, but it doesn't detract from the overall cinematic It's there to be effective. Yeah. It is, well, it, it, and it, one of the reasons it's effective is because it works tonally. The film is sort of a, a twisted black comedy and it fits in perfectly. The violence in Mandy is very, very extreme because the film is a kind of warped fairy tale-like, very dark phantasmagoria. That's the reason it works. In Becky, Lulu Wilson, literally, yeah, she goes from this annoying teenage brat to this killing machine. And I think that the filmmakers... Are you expected to sympathise with her plights? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I well, know. yeah, essentially. But I think the filmmakers thought that they, did, they thought that connection would be badass and quirky in an inventive way but i didn't find it to be that whatsoever i thought it was absolutely it wasn't good ludicrous it was bullshit ludicrous and yeah i I strongly advise against people uh wasting their time with it
0: i didn't realize before i started googling this film obviously yeah becky is a quite a common name but it's uh, actually wikipedia has an article on becky as a term in much the same sense that Karen is used. Yes. In the pejorative sense. So Becky is mm. a um, pejorative American slang term for a white woman. So it comes to be associated with a white girl who loves Starbucks and Uggs and is clueless about racial and social issues. I had no idea. I knew the cold Karen thing. I didn't know, realise Becky. Well, the, car- the character of Becky
1: strongly gave me the impression that she was going to grow up to be a Karen. So sure, I'm glad it's, you it's, mentioned but- that. Yes, she does take on a bunch of... Neo Nazis, arguably the most dangerously close minded um, quadrant of the populational section, whatever term you want to a- a- apply. But she in herself was just vexing beyond belief. And that was a strong contributor to me not really caring whether she succeeded.
0: Yeah, so you're supposed to root for her in the end. <clears throat> Is there any character transformation, or other than the fact that she's suddenly, for
1: some reason, extremely accomplished and being right? <clears throat> Is there any sort of redeeming quality that comes through? Well, apart from the fact that she kills um, horrible, murderous neo-Nazis, there's an an arguable, an arguable redemptive element. However, she goes from a stroppy, little moody shit. By the end of the film, she just has this look of smugness on her face. Uh And there's many scenes where she just goes into full-on thousand-yard stare psychopathy. And i he's like, this character... characterization is fucking schizophrenic. It, it doesn't work at all. It just took me completely out of it. So, yeah. For my money, no.
0: <laughs> <laughs> One to avoid there, then. Well, let's get <laughs> on to our other um, female-nominated review of the week. <laughs> and Let's go on to Shirley. Shirley,
1: yeah. Tell me about Shirley. Now, Shirley's a bit better, actually. i rather enjoy Shirley. Shirley is um new film that features Elizabeth Moss. You know, we were discussing The Invisible Man recently.
0: Yeah. Elizabeth
1: Moss is the lead in that. And when I watched that, I was a little bit unsure about Elizabeth Moss. I didn't know if she was just enveloped in a really poor film and was doing her best to act around it, or if she just wasn't that that great of a performer. And when I was watching Shirley, which is loosely biographical account, of um, the author Shirley Jackson, oh, who was a writer of uh, horror novellas and thriller novellas. I'm familiar Depends with the name, yeah. Other. Very um, loosely autobiographical. And Elizabeth Moss stars as Shirley. I initially, again, was a little bit unsure about how this was going to go in terms of her performance. But overall, when it really got into it, I thought Elizabeth Moss did really, really well. And I ended up really liking her turn in this a lot, mainly down to the way that she physically emotes in a lot of scenes. So the narrative is Shirley and her husband, played by Michael Stuhlbarg, I i.e., um, oh, bloody hell, do you know what? I've momentarily forgotten the came- name of this character in Boardwalk Empire. Arnold Rothstein. Arnold Rothstein, there we go. Oh,
0: yeah. Well, yeah, my favorite performance.
1: Yeah, well, yeah. And he delivers a very good performance in this Love well, Boardwalk Empire, And he was the best thing about absolutely. it. Absolutely. Well, They live in Vermont, and he is a professor at uh, Burlington College, I believe it is, and a young couple come to stay with them, and Shirley's husband has asked him to come and stay because Shirley has, her writing career has has become a bit lax recently, and she's spending all day in bed moping, chain-smoking, drinking, just being a complete and utter despondent, asocial mess, and hubby is very, very fed up of having to juggle his career, his academic career with making sure she's all right all the time and being at home all the time you know, to monitor her, to make sure she doesn't do anything stupid like attempt suicide or do something violent to anyone else. And his work is starting to suffer. So he asked these young, this young couple to come up. And the male half of the couple is actually an aspiring professor. So he has some some sort of degree of reverence for Michael Stuhlbarg, as does the young lady uh, Rose. She has reverence for Shirley. And the the dynamic is ultimately superficial because Shirley starts to essentially manipulate and more or less seduce the young lady Rose and begins to utilise her and her bow as sort of fodder for her this new writing project she's working on. The new project is about... A girl from another college who went missing without explanation. And Shirley's really obsessed with this incident and really identifies with it almost from a feministic perspective. She suspects something horrible might have happened to this girl, or she was essentially just, uh, often they use the one, one of the lines they use in the film is. The reason this girl went missing is because that's the only way anyone would be noticing her. So she becomes obsessed from a sort of feministic standpoint and in a standpoint of injustice. And she starts to more or less manipulate Rose into reenacting certain actions that the missing young woman was known to have oh, right. endeavoured on before she vanished And yeah, this kind of weird sexual psychodrama drama starts. There's little bits of persona in there from Bergman, the way that there's a sort of vaguely lesbianic relationship, and um, Michael Stolbarg as well. He's um, has a he executes a great portrayal of just the most utterly pompous educator. He, this, he's, he always has this condescending sneer looking down his nose, especially he, there's a particular scene in the film where he, at dinner, he eviscerates the male half of the young couple in the, uh, in the most egregiously condescending manner that you can imagine just citing his dissertation that he presented him with as a derivative and unoriginal and just an utterly pompous cock. And Elizabeth Moss, as Shirley, she has a great way of communicating that she is contemptuous of her husband and ambivalent about the couple at best, but progressively a little bit more obsessive and lustful with young Rose as the film goes on. And ultimately, yeah, I think it, was, it had an Elizabeth, Elizabeth Moss performance that I was very, at the very start, I was a bit unsure about it. But ultimately, I thought it was very good indeed. And it was just a really, really interesting movie. It was kind of like an autobiographical, psychological horror. And there were certain factual liberties taken. But in the final analysis, I actually think it is worth a watch. It's got a great creepy atmosphere to it. And it certainly keeps you, there is a modicum of suspense in there, definitely. I think overall, it was, um, it was actually a very enjoyable and interesting little film. Oh, very cool. I was just
0: looking through uh, Elizabeth Moss, Moss, rather, her CV. And
1: wow, she's done a lot of stuff. Yeah, she's been in a huge number. Well, she was in the um, marriage. the Handmaid's Tale series,
0: yeah, yeah. So, one to watch out for as a, an actor, do we think?
1: Well, her prefer- this, this is the thing, The Invisible Man would have been the most recent thing with her in the lead that I've seen. This performance, it's it's encouraging, it's definitely encouraging. She's, cert- she's certainly got a knack for playing a damaged individual very well, and I think. The reason I was a little bit on the fence about it, I was, obviously it goes without saying, I tr- tr- strive to be as objective as possible when viewing, you know, any individual piece of work. And I was trying to remain as unbiased as I could in light of the debacle that was The Invisible Man. And initially, the era that Shirley Jackson would have been around, Elizabeth Moss adopts this transatlantic accent. And it's the kind of the stereotypical, you know, transatlantic U.S. high society author, you know, sitting sitting in the chair with the red cardigan, constantly smoking cigarettes, with, you know, with very affected D's and T's. I thought that initially made me brace a little bit, but yeah, it, it just it just unfolds into what is actually a very very unsettling performance in a in a way that was very convincing. Yeah, I just think all, all in all. It wasn't a it wasn't a sock blower offer, but it was good. It <laughs> the was socks good. remained, but the film was uh, good. Yeah, no, the film the film was good. The film is definitely worth worth checking out. I would I would recommend it because for just for um you know ambiguous cryptic intrigue, if nothing else. I just thought it was a it was an interesting movie. It's, yeah, definitely worth people's time. To well, this
0: ties in nicely actually because while we're on the subject of horror and mystery writers. Uh, I had a question recently from an audience member asking. Um, basically, we mentioned Stephen King a lot and our Stephen King favourites. Yes. And if you if you were going to start uh, reading Stephen King, what are your favourites? So I thought that's a question for Liam, if there ever was one. So you're a huge Stephen King nut. Oh God! If you were going to just start from fresh, <laughs> this is a difficult
1: question. Sorry, I've, I've spoken um, on you, but, um, well, Jesus, I mean. Without equivocation, the stand mm-hmm. definitely, definitely the stand. The novel of the Shining is fantastic. Needful Things is a superb. Needful Things is a very, very good one. That's a very underrated one. Um, what about the Dark Tower stuff, Are you fan of that? Uh, yeah, uh, like the Gunslinger, and I admittedly I haven't act. You know what? I haven't actually read the entire Dark Tower series, but I've read the first few, and it was very good. Uh, they really need to, you know. <laughs> that adaptation with McConaughey and Elba yeah go fuck itself basically yeah. because that was a complete insult to the work.
0: I've only ever read the first of those. <clears throat> I watched about ooh, yeah the Gut the Gunslinger is a good book. I read I read a well, I read I watched about half an hour of the Edge of Elba one and thought that's enough for me. Yeah, oh, nice. No, it's, it's, I almost didn't want to ruin the exactly. rest of the series. by how far of, it
1: would go into yeah, it. Like, the majority the other one the majority of King's cinematic adaptations have been dreadful. The Shining was great. And then... Famously, Stephen King didn't like The Shining. Though. No, he didn't. He found it very cold and he thought it was far too removed from essentially the original intent of the 1977 novel because the 1977 novel was, what sans the supernatural elements that we know of, largely autobiographical because it touches on his... You know Jack Torrance is an alcoholic at the time. Stephen King was going through a very bad alcohol addiction. Jack Torrance is very anti-authoritarian. Stephen King has always been a critical, independent thinker, very suspicious and resentful of authority, which is one of the traits I've always admired about him. Jack Torrance was an avatar in many respects of Stephen King, and the fact that they. He, you know, to his mind, they completely and utterly transformed the essence of the novel. I love the Kubrick Shining. I can definitely understand why he didn't. So do you but, view
0: the two as separate works? Oh, uh, Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: And I, 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 I think you should do, really, because they are. And he's actually said <clears throat> in later interviews, Stephen King has said, clinically examined as, you know, an individual motion picture, The Shining is actually very good. I just have a big problem with my association with it. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I can totally see what he's driving at. Yeah, It must but, um, be so
0: difficult as an author as well, because you've got such a clear <clears throat> picture in your mind of what you're writing. Yeah. And what you're trying to get across to your audience. But then the nature of the medium is that everyone has to build that world in their own heads.
1: Absolutely, yeah.
0: So it's always going to be a, uh, it's, it's never going to be your vision, is it?
1: No, no, no. Oh, um, so just um, in reference to the question again goes without saying as well. It mm-hmm. you absolutely have to read it. I think I'm, I'm always torn between it and the stand as King's magnum opus. I kind of I usually I kind of I've always viewed them in tandem, really. But that uh, Gerald's Game is great. Ah, oh, man! I mean, the list is just the list is fucking endless. Um, but yeah, definitely, definitely read, the, definitely read the stand, definitely read Needful Things, definitely read it.
0: Well, we rated um, fairly recently. I seem to remember uh, the mist on this podcast. Yeah, the mist was a great novella. Yeah. I've never read the novella. Is is that as good? Is that
1: well? It, I mean, it's great, yeah. but I know the um, ending of the film. Is but the obviously, yeah, that that's the thing. D- Darabont changed the ending to a degree that King essentially became benevolently envious of it because he watched it and he went, yeah. "Shit, why didn't I end the story?" I man? thought that was really that's
0: interesting. Perfect. Yeah, yeah. I remember them saying uh, <clears> when uh, Stephen King went to the premiere as well. They made him jump a couple of times, and they couldn't believe it. Like you make Stephen King jump, yeah. you must have done something
1: right. I fucking adore Stephen King. One of my favourite, I think probably my favourite Stephen King anecdote because he he's a good raconteur, on tour. You know, in reference mm. to himself as well. And he said he he was at he was back home for a while. in I think it's Bangor in Maine, and he was coming out of a little convenience store, and there was a woman, sort of like in her seventies who noticed him and she was like, you know, oh, I, I know you, you're that young man who like writes all those really frightening stories. Like I, you know, good luck to you, respect you, but it's not for me. And he's like, well, ma'am, I, I also wrote um, Stand By Me and the Shawshank Redemption. And she goes, no, you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> <It's> like, okay. <laughs> well, that's that then. Yes. <laughs> but no, um, absolutely start with those. Just, try, I mean, oh, um, his short story collections as well. Mm. Like, um, he's
0: such a voracious yeah. writer he, there's that's, so yeah. many I, I think that's why the question is being asked is that if you're going to start and go right i'm going to read some stephen king i mean if you look at just how
1: many books he's released it's insane Ab- he's yeah. probably the most prolific writer of our time he is and he and he's absolutely one of the best and yeah i've, I've always loved from a young age you know i, I started reading well it's as with as usual with me as is custom essentially I started reading Stephen King at a very inappropriate age, and yeah, if I was just sold ever since, and I've you know I I can start counting the amount of books that I've physically owned by him, but I will definitely forget a lot because there's just too many. Yeah, yeah, too much. much. But now, yeah, I mean, yeah, whoever whoever sent that question in, please start reading him asap because you will not regret it at all. You're missing out if you don't.
0: Okay, well that brings me on to my TV of the week then, and uh, this is an interesting one. Uh, I'm going to talk about The Last Kingdom. Ever heard of that one? I've heard of it. So this originally started as a BBC series. Uh, And I remember watching the first series on BBC iPlayer, and it's quite the early days of iPlayer. Uh, This is set in the late 800s, to give you a little bit of time frame on this. So this is basically doing uh, medieval era history which, as you know, is something of a favourite of mine. Yeah. yeah. And I love my whole sword-swinging stuff. I read a lot of books on medieval history, very much an amateur student, but it's a a period of history that very much uh, interests me, and anything that's got a bit of swords and violence and a historical tie sort of ties me in. So I started watching this on the BBC, and I watched um, season one and a bit of season two, and I was left a little bit cold by it. It was quite good, but it was suffering from what I would call BBC production values. And we've sort of hinted at this in shows previously. The BBC's got a horrible thing of taking a great idea and then strangling the shit out of the budget mm. and removing the potential from the idea. And there was very much a lot of that with The Last Kingdom. This is a show that has got some really bad line delivery. I mean, really bad line delivery. We are talking about Uhtred, son of Uhtred. Um <laughs> Now, <laughs> the reason I know that he's called Utrid, son of Utrid, is because he says it so fucking often in the show. He can't just say Utrid Junior. No, he is Utrid, son of Utrid. <laughs> and when he introduces himself to people, they go, You're Utrid, son of Utrid. <laughs> it's become a running joke in my household. Utrid, son of Utrid. Should we do some Utrid, son of Utrid? Utrid, um, son of Utrid is played by Alexander Draymond who, bless him, is trying fairly hard, but is not... Bless his <laughs> Yeah, he's not the level of acting that is perhaps required for the role. One of the problems being is that Uhtred's son of Uhtred is very much a Mary Sue character. So he's a fictional character. There was indeed an Uhtred's son of Uhtred, but his life's got nothing to do with the events of the show, because these are based on the Saxon stories, which are novels by Bernard Cornwell. Mm. And Bernard Cornwell's whole... Uh, Raising the echo of this entire thing is that he's taking Saxon history, but he's sort of moving things around a bit in order to make an entertaining novel series. And ideally, you go and look up the history afterwards. I mean, all well and good. And, yeah, you know, as we have said before, I mean, history in itself is something of a murky. Yeah, everything with history is first-hand accounts, second-hand accounts. It's written by the victors. Exactly. Yeah. Things can all get mixed up. So history is always going to go that way. So Utrid son of Uhtred, starts off uh, as a young boy. He is um, heir to the seat of Bebenbur What? Bebenbur Bebenbur And if you think I said that badly, you should wait till you see the show. <laughs> because it's like every actor can't quite decide how to pronounce it, so they kind of run over it quite quickly.
1: <laughs> bebenbur bebenbur Just sounds like South Park. <laughs> yeah. yeah <Bebbenbur. laughs> Uhtred, heir to
0: Bebbenbur. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, he's a young boy. Um, he's a young Anglo-Saxon boy and the Danes, uh, the Vikings, invade and they capture Uhtred's family and Uhtred himself is taken away as a slave to be raised by Danes. Now, his father, Ragnar, not the famous Ragnar Lothbrok, I'd like to point not out. Not the good Ragnar. Not the good <laughs> Ragnar. There. There's another Ragnar in this as well, also not the good Ragnar. Um, he gets <laughs> taken away and he is essentially raised as a Dane. They say So Ragnar, the Viking chieftain, takes him on as his son, and raises him as a Dane with his uh, Viking brethren. So Uhtred basically has a foot in each camp. He is half Anglo-Saxon, half Dane, which means he's basically nobody. The Danes sort of view him as a Dane, and the Anglo-Saxons view him as a Dane, even though he was essentially of Anglo-Saxon blood. So he's got this constant dynamic of uh, one foot in one world, one foot in the other. Uhtred eventually comes back to, well, there's, there's a whole fucking sequence of Uhtred becoming older and Uhtred becoming the Mary Sue that he is destined to become. A fair, fair bit of <laughs> montage sequences, fair bit of, uh, would you believe he's incredibly proficient with a sword, and everybody likes a bit of Uhtred wang. If, you, if there's a, uh, if there's an attractive female lead, past, or just an attractive female in general, Uhtred's going to fuck her at some point. You know, it's coming. Uh, and so basically it does a half-in-history, half-in-fiction version of uh, medieval England. Uh, with so this is mainly based around the time of King Alfred, later known of course, while historians have granted him the title of Alfred the Great, uh, widely regarded as one of the king that essentially formed the unification of England or at least set the groundwork for the unification of England. So before that you had the kingdom of Wessex, you had the kingdom of Mercia, uh, kingdom of Northumbria, mm-hmm. and uh, the Danes as well when they invaded, they actually took a huge amount of England. I'm pretty sure most people don't know this actually. Uh, there's, there's something I'm one of those people that you give me a few beers, I will get very, very boring, and I will discuss to go England. into Danelaw. Yes, exactly. And, and if you look at the maps of that time, like Danelaw basically took. Don't worry, it, I'm
1: as boring as you. <laughs> <laughs> this is why we're friends. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so this is a very uh, conflicting time in England's history. In that, well, it's pre-England history. Really, it's the the history of the island. And uh, so the Danes invade. They take over large parts of England. The kingdom of Wessex resists them, the kingdom of Mercia sometimes resists them, sometimes allies with the Danes. And so there's all that sort of political intrigue of who allies with who and all this sort of stuff. Okay, so there's the setup. First thing to say about Last Kingdom is that a lot of the performances aren't very good. Mm. In fact, a lot of the performances are so they're bordering on laughable, which, <laughs> I, let's face it, that gives you a hell of a lot of fun. Yeah, so, oh, yeah, absolutely. You've got Utrid, son of Utrid, walking around with this really dodgy <laughs> accent. But, I mean, he's German by, uh, by well, by birth, but raised in the U.S. and uh, in Switzerland and France as well. Alexander Drayman, uh, he can't quite decide whether he's doing his German accent or an English accent or whatever, which I suppose kind of fits with the character that he has gone well, I'm Uhtred, son of Uhtred. So Utrid, son of Utrid. Another thing Uhtred likes to do, by the way, is that at the start of each episode, Utrid likes to uh, recap the last episode in a completely monotone delivery. <laughs> so let me, We're let me... sure
1: this is not a comedy. Yeah, I know, right. <laughs> so let me give
0: you an impression of what that's like. Here we go. I am Utrid, son of Utrid. I forged the way through the river to go to the king who said that I should be the Saxon, where I bequeathed my sword to the I am Uhtred, son of Utrid. I went to, and he just done this, <laughs> and this complete, like, monotone delivery that is absolutely fucking hilarious. However, however, there is a however. Listen, if you're thinking about doing The Last Kingdom and you haven't done Vikings, forget it. Like, Vikings is by a million degrees the better shot. Mm. If you're looking for swords and uh, maybe a little bit of sorcery and that sort of period of medieval England and Vikings invading and all that sort of stuff, please, please, please do Vikings. If, however, you've done Vikings, you're all caught up with that and you're looking for something else, The Last Kingdom, it ain't a bad shout. I mean, what sort of put me back onto this? So I watched the first season on the BBC and I watched a bit of the second season on BBC and then I forgot about it entirely. This was years ago now. And then I noticed it was on Netflix and I thought, that's weird. Because when I watched the first season on BBC, I thought to myself, they'll give it a second season and they'll drop it, mm. which they did. But then Netflix picked it up. And now it's got season three and season four. And I thought, that's very fucking interesting because there was always the potential within The Last Kingdom for it to be a good show. I mean, there is the real potential there for it to be a Vikings competitor. It's a very interesting period in history. The combat sequences have done quite well. The certain setting's done quite well, but the BBC's got a horrible way of strangling this sort of thing. When I saw that Netflix picked it up and there were two seasons that I wasn't aware of, I thought, okay, well, let's go back and do it again then. And let's see whether Netflix has been able to sort of save this show. And to a certain extent, they have. I mean, I'm not going to say it's the greatest thing in the world. It's far from it. But there are, there's a certain thing to it that I sort of can't get away from. Maybe it's because I like that period of history so much. Maybe it's because I'm have a background in this, and, you know, if you're doing swords and, and medieval England, then I'm there day one with my bucket of popcorn going, go on, show me,
1: yeah. right? Yeah,
0: But it's gradually sort of raising itself. There are good performances dotted within it as well. I mean, I'd, I'd like to point out um, Ian Hart as Father Biocca, who is a sort of a monk priest who eventually sort of works his way up to being the ear of the king and also something of a father figure for Uhtred. Ian Hart's performance is really, really, really good. So good he makes the other performances look bad by comparison, (laughs) I have to say. He's the carrier. Uh, You've also got David Dawson as King Alfred. Now, I know these names aren't familiar. And the reason for this is if you look through the cast list of this production, most of them are stage actors and relatively inexperienced in the world of TV and film. Uh, But they are stage actors coming out. David Dawson has done a lot of stage work. And his portrayal of King Alfred I thought was really, really good as well. As a result, and we've said this before about a lot of shows, when you throw great acting into the mix like that, it sort of makes everyone else raise their game up with it. And gradually, piece by piece, The Last Kingdom has sort of inched its way up to being what was a show with a good concept that was pretty laughable into something that I'm now halfway through season three. And actually, I'm really enjoying it. It's sort of raised its game. And I think Netflix has a hell of a lot to do with that. I think they're very good at taking other people's cast-offs and throwing the budget at it and putting different people in the writing room, and perhaps even (coughs) a few acting coaches in the mix, (laughs) that it's actually starting to raise itself into something better. There's a lot to laugh at, though. I mean, for a start, the half-Dane, half-Saxon thing. Sometimes Uhtred changes his mind halfway through an episode as to who he's allied to. So one minute he's allied with the Danes who are fighting King Alfred, one minute he's allied with King Alfred who's fighting the Danes. Who knows? Uhtred certainly fucking doesn't. Um, You've also got... You've got the wailing woman, as I like to call her as well. So she's in the intro theme for the show and also crops up throughout the show going That happens a lot. So much Boy. so. Yeah, I don't know who the wailing woman is, but I do wish she'd shut the fuck up again, <laughs> because the wailing woman is punctuating far too much. <laughs> Every now and then they'll cut to a, like you know an army on the move somewhere and they'll be hey oh, hey oh for fuck's sake, man. Just please, please, like her best. I've noticed with the Netflix stuff, by the way, there's starting to be more other soundtrack
1: brought in. I think the budget's sort of working. I'm okay. just getting do you remember do you remember um the you know paddy Constantine at all debut tyrannosaur? You yeah. Remember the bit near the beginning where Peter Mullen in the pub and those lads are just making the noise, and he's just like, "Shut the fuck up!" Yeah. <laughs> the, the wailing woman can go and do one. And I'm just getting that song. image in my head. <laughs> I
0: mean, the trouble with this show is it's always going to be compared to Vikings, and the problem with that is the Vikings is an extremely good show, and it nails it so well that The Last Kingdom is always going to come up a pauper to the Vikings king. Mm. And that's kind of a shame. And I think The Last Kingdom is being a little bit overlooked. Like I said, you're going to watch, if you decide from this review, you're going to do it. You're going to watch season one and go, you, there's points where you're going to laugh. I mean, I did. And there's points where you're going to go, this really isn't as good as it should be. There's line delivery in there. and there. Again, I'm so sorry, Alexander Draymond, but I do have to point to you. Because Uhtred, son of Utrid, is a very monotone. But then what's he got to work with? He's a Mary Sue. He's so good at sword fighting that you never are afraid that he's going to die. The worst that ever happens to Utrid is occasionally he gets knocked over and goes, and then, but <laughs> yeah, fucking half an hour later, Utrid's fine. Yeah, so there's always that going through. He's such a sort of author insert and a over-the-top badass that it is quite,
1: you know, you roll your eyes. You roll your eyes more than you should. Does the show, um, in any way whatsoever, examine, examine his identity crisis in a way that's, could conceivably be called interesting.
0: Every other character on the show, um, the, their thoughts about it and the way that frames the narrative is interesting. Um, his performance and his lines know. <laughs> nice. Uhtred is very much a one-note character. I mean, brooding is about the darkest Uhtred will go. He broods quite a lot. But again, every time a, a, a pretty girl is on screen, then you can pretty much guarantee that is going to bed her. And every time there's a con- combat sequence... And you can be pretty sure that is going to run through waving his sword. And the combat sequences are good, don't get me wrong. They're very well done. And I think combat sequences these days are always well done because I, I think it's the same group of choreographers moving between shows. If you like the Game of Thrones combat, if you like the Vikings combat, then The Last Kingdom is the same. You know, you've seen horses run through crowds and
1: smashy, crashy, you know, axes and heads chopping off and arms yeah. falling.
0: It, do, it does all of that. And it does all of that very, very well.
1: Let me guess, whenever there's an attractive female appearing on the screen, she sees Uhtred and she tries to look at the floor, yep. but then she can't take her eyes off of him. Oh, I didn't know you'd seen it. Yeah. No, I haven't. <laughs> it's just and that's very amazing, bad.
0: Yeah. I'll, also, while we're on the subject of good performances and Amongst the Dross, uh, Eva Berth... Uh, sorry, Eva Berthistel, uh, as Hild, who is a nun and uh, one of Uhtred's trusted allies, who sort of becomes this half warrior nun character Uh, she's very very good in it and also looked up her cv would you believe it she's done quite a lot of tv so she's a safe pair of warrior
1: nun i like how that i like the flow of that yeah (laughs) there's some
0: good stuff going on in here i kind of want to recommend it i just want to say that if you do start this off and go into season one and season two and go well it's a bit rubbish i'm with you But there's enough there. It's an interesting period enough of history. And they're doing enough of history. I mean, it's not historically accurate, but then what show ever is. They do enough of history that it's, it's good enough, you know? Yeah. And the combat is good enough. And the line delivery is not great, but the rest of it makes up for it. And I'm, I'm kind of into it. And perhaps that's just because anything with swords and uh, Vikings and that sort of stuff, that's my jam man you know i'm, I'm always down so would you
1: pressure. say that it's ironically
0: worth the time yeah it's as it progresses it becomes genuinely worth the time okay so if you watch it if you're watching it and going what the fuck is andy on about this is rubbish just i don't know maybe you won't like it in the long run maybe it's just um tickling my strings in a way that it won't for other people but it's got to a point now where actually I'm quite into Uhtred, son of Utrid, and I want to find
1: out what happens next. I mean, from your description so far, it sound I think it sounds funny. So I'd watch it on that score alone. <laughs> funny or indeed fun. Yeah,
0: and I, I genuinely I thought long and hard about this review, and how to frame it, because it is laughable at points. Uh, Alexander Draymond's performance goes up and down all over the place. Uh, A lot of the characters are written as one note, but then you start finding gems. Like I said, Ian Hart as Father Bioca, I think is a wonderful, wonderful performance. Adds so much heart to the show. There's also actors that you can see, I think maybe perhaps because many of them have got such a background in stage, that as the series progresses, you can actually see them sort of find their mark in Mm. terms of TV performance and what works for that. So if you're looking at someone and thinking, that's a terrible performance, as I was with quite a few of the characters, actually as the series goes on, they do raise their game. The whole thing is gradually building up to something. It's a shame that it didn't start off as fantastic as it has become. And even saying that it's fantastic now is maybe a little bit of a stretch. But I find it uh, eminently watchable. And I think, like I said, if you're looking for this sort of thing and you haven't done Vikings, do Vikings. Vikings is superb. I'm all over Vikings. I think that's a fantastic show. And I reviewed it many, many episodes ago. If you'd like to track back and have a look for that one. Uh, But if you have done Vikings and you're looking for that sort of... um, medieval sword fighting kick. Last kingdom ain't a bad shout. And it's really grown on me as a series. And I think that's a nice thing for a series to do. It has gradually done what I hoped it would do, which is gradually up its game to a point where now I it's one of those ones where you think it you gets the end of an episode and the watch next episode <laughs> thing on Netflix comes up and you go, Yeah, go on, let's have another one. And then it's four o'clock in the morning. It's it's <laughs> it's definitely got that going for it. So I mean mixed bag, like I said, I I think um, some people will struggle with it. I think some people will go, what rubbish? What the fuck is Andy on about? But overall, I have to say I am really enjoying it at this point. So I'd say it's worth a go.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, it's good. I mean, at least it's, it's, you know, it's not an overwhelmingly negative review you're giving. It It certainly sounds, well, it sounds funny, but it also does sound intriguing. I am fascinated by that period of history as, as well. So
0: These are the hardest reviews to do. It's very easy to do a review where something's flat out terrible. It's very easy to do a review where something's flat out good. When something sits on the line and occasionally goes into fantastic and occasionally dips into terrible, back and forth again, it's very difficult to recommend it. Because what, <laughs> I, what I don't want is someone going out there going, oh, I'll give The Last Kingdom a go. Sticking it on and going, hang on a minute, Andy's an
1: idiot. <laughs> that's, that's really what you don't it's, want, right? It's funny because mentioning Shirley, there's actually a line of Michael Straubargs in that where he says, when something is
0: essentially
1: competent. Ooh. There's no forgiving that, you know, in yeah. terms of how to review it. You know how to review it? Yeah.
0: <laughs> but overall, I have to say, I'm quite fond of it. It's quite endearing. I found it to be something of a friend, actually. And I again, I think it's one of those ones as well that you could probably watch they do a recap at the start of every episode. Uhtred, son of Uhtred, gives his monosyllabic voiceover, which is so laughable every single time it gets me. It has literally become—it does a, make you belly laugh every time. It's literally become a line in my household. Uhtred, son of Uhtred, <laughs> you know. But that's pretty bad. And they do the recap, I think, because there's a lot of um, like court. Machinations Yeah And so there's a whole thing of And then so and so Betrayed so and so And then her sister Went off to go Who's related to the cousin Over there That's got money That's being given to Alfred Because So they have They feel the need To do this recap Each time Which I totally get Because if you haven't Watched the series in a while You need that recap As someone that's Binge watching it though It's fucking hilarious (laughs) Every single time they do it Oh good Yeah I'd, I'd say Honestly It's actually starting To transform into A Vikings competitor And I like that Awesome. Okay, and that brings me on to trivia, of course. And I thought, you know, come on, it's a favourite of mine. Let's do some Viking facts. Mm, yes. Or should we say Danes? Uh, Danes of a certain period, because Vikings, uh, Viking essentially means pirate, raider. Mm. The Vikings would not have called themselves Vikings. They were Northmen or Danes. But again, super, super rich period of history. So let's do a few of those. Uh, here's some good stuff. Several popular words we use today have Viking origins. Snort, lump, scrawny, and anger all have their roots in Old Norse. Did you know that? I wasn't actually aware of that. There's a few more as well. Um, hell, ugly, weak, skull, and slaughter are all descended from Norse.
1: There's a lot of Viking imagery in all those words there. Yeah, it's, it's interesting
0: that the words we associate with what the Vikings did are the ones that actually <laughs> made it through to the English language. And you can also thank, though, there's a few slightly different ones. Uh, cake, freckles, husband and wife are all uh, de- derived from uh, Old Norse words. Freckles? Freckles, yeah. Oh, okay. It's Old Norse, apparently. Uh, Vikings were keen skiers. It's known from archaeological evidence that rudimentary skis have existed for at least six thousand years. By the time of the Vikings, skiing was both a popular way to get around and a common leisure activity. So much so there was actually a god of skiing. uh maybe- <laughs> yeah, seriously, <laughs> everyone knows Thor and Odin and all that shit. Do you know the god of skiing? Uh And now again, it's a bit of an Andy pronunciation here. I'm going to say Ula, U W L R Ula, U W
1: L R. So Ula, Ula. I guess. I uh, don't know, man. The uh, thing with wording is that I mean there's a... Uh, especially when you get into the Scandinavian stuff. Well there's a there's a um, a Carl Dreyer film, a very famous one, where the title is spelt O R D E T. Mm-hmm. Now intuitively you would say "order," debt. Yeah. But I think the um, the actual pronunciation is something like Ugh. Yeah. <laughs> I
0: don't know, I'm letting down my ancestors here <laughs> as well. They would have been able to pronounce it. <laughs> <laughs> and he's sitting here in 2020 fucking can't. <laughs> anyway the god Ullr uh, he's almost always shown on skis carrying a bow in one text it is said that Ullr can be called ski god bow god hunting god and shield god oh cool so there you go Thor, Odin, Freyr. everyone knows what, those ones
1: it, it, did they used to be called shield maidens yes they're pretty badass all those shield, shield waves all.
0: here's a bit of nerdery for you shield maidens are hotly contested amongst the historical community. As there exist? Well, there have been graves uh, <clears throat> dug up, for want of a better term, that have been female <clears throat> graves that have shown that they were buried like the Viking warriors with shield and sword and things for them to use and bows and things, things for them to use on their journey to Valhalla. Um, there's also the whole thing of Vikings letting their women fight. I mean, we're pretty sure that happened. Um, because there are accounts from armies that they fought <coughs> of women fighting, often bare-breasted. By the way, apparently shield maidens. Uh, but there's no uh, fucks given. No fucks given. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but there is a bit of a debate as to whether shield maidens were. We, we we know they sort of exist. There seems to be a consensus that they did exist in some form or another. <coughs> but as to the extent of their role, no one's quite sure. The problem with um, I mean all history really, but especially Viking history and Norse history is that they didn't really write anything down. Their language is runic, and they often reserved uh, writing in runes for things about the gods and their sort of mythology. So we know the mythology quite well, but in terms of their actual acts, we kind of have to rely on um, basically the accounts of people that fought them, and those are always going to be skewed because, I mean, there's the whole thing of if your army is wiped out by the invading Norse, of course you're going to say they were the best fighters of all time, and that they absolutely kicked your ass because they were gigantic monsters of men and they ran in with big double axes and all this kind of stuff. No one is really sure. I mean, most of what we get of Norse history comes from the sagas, but most of the sagas were written a good couple of hundred years after the events. Yeah. So we're never quite sure on that. So a bit of historical contention.
1: One of the things that actually makes me think that Vikings were a bunch of audacious bastards above many others, is because you know that there's essentially the debate that uh, Norsemen actually sailed to the Americas.
0: Yeah. Uh, Leif
1: Erikson. Yeah, well, well before Columbus. That's been somewhat confirmed in this part. Apparently he (laughs) landed in Canada. Well, um, there's, I think, Vikings that encountered um, indigenous people in the Americas, Native Americans in the 11th century. The Vikings referred to them as scraylings. And that word means Foreigner. Which, and I think you're taking the piss. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Turn, turning up and referring to the people who were there as foreigners. <laughs> so racism from the start. Yeah, exactly.
0: Now you know why I don't want to get a runic tattoo. <laughs> but I do, though. It's actually part of my heritage. I do, I'd like to get some runes, but I just don't want to be mistaken for a, a terrible racist. <laughs> uh, yeah, so as you mentioned earlier, actually, uh, law refers to the regions of England that were forced to follow the laws that the Vikings implemented after their invasion. Like I said, a really good thing to do, actually. Do look If you're interested in this sort of stuff, look up um, King Alfred on Wikipedia because there's some great maps and things that show just how much of the UK was taken up by the Norse. I mean, they're literally holding the majority of it. Wessex was virtually equal in terms of the kingdom's health. But yes, yeah, so uh, Danor became the term for the geographic location. Yeah, so uh, some of these cities that were taken, uh, Leicester, York, Cambridge, Buckingham, a hell of a lot of, particularly York, was for a very, very long time under Danish uh, Nordic Viking control. And if you go to the cities there, York is an absolutely beautiful city, but there is a lot of evidence there of the Vikings themselves. Speaking of Viking evidence, actually, of course there's a classic thing of Vikings in popular media are portrayed with horns on their helmets. Now, this isn't a particularly interesting fact because most people know by now that obviously wasn't true. Yeah. Running into battle with a couple of great horns sticking out of your helmet would have been a bad idea. Came
1: from an opera, didn't it?
0: Yeah, so it's a Germanic thing. Mm -hmm. There was a big thing in the 1800s about Germanic traditions being sort of uh, conflated with Norse traditions and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. What is interesting, though, is that in terms of uh, Viking helms, uh, the helmets they wore in battle, there is actually only one example of this that we can point to today. There is only one vi- complete Viking helm, and only five other pieces of Viking helms. And this Viking helm is quite famous, and you see it in a lot of these productions that are doing sort of Norse history. It's got the it's, it's a regular domed helmet with an eye guard over the front of it and a nose guard. We've actually only got one of them which suggests that the Vikings uh, weren't particularly fond of helmets. Because they definitely had helmets, but the fact that we've only found one and the Vikings were so prevalent in Britain suggests that they actually they didn't like um, helmets very much. Same with their armour, actually. And they <laughs> only definitely had things like mail and plate. They didn't use very much of it. They were very much about being quick. Yeah. So they wore furs and leather. Yeah. And uh, yeah. very possibly leather caps rather than metal caps, simply for as speed aspect is the assumption that they they basically, the whole thing was raiding. It was getting in there so fast that their army doesn't have a chance to react, which I thought was very interesting. Uh, The Viking rules of family and coupling were much less strict than in most societies. Women were free to live and sleep with a man without marrying him. In fact, she was still allowed to do it if the man was married to someone else. There was no concept of legitimate or illegitimate children. Apparently, the Vikings found this very strange when they got into the English culture of bastards and that sort of thing. The Vikings saw no uh marriage and children were sort of separate entities there are no sort of concept of that which is quite egalitarian when you think of the it yeah absolutely here. yeah and again we talked about the um, you know uh viking women were known to fight in battle but as to um shield maidens and units we're still not quite sure
1: historically again because the history is just so hazy there's also the term um, berserk yeah because you had berserkers berserkers yeah which I, I think that the only well, the only really sort of veracity that anyone can attest to is what's written in sort of Norse. It's not. It's not necessarily Norse mythology, but just Norse written law. Yeah, there's there's Anglo-Saxon accounts of what they refer to as berserkers. Yeah, it's sort of, of, you know, an extraordinarily violent trance-like fury that these warriors would fight with.
0: Yeah, the the assumption is that the the Norse uh, use hallucinogenic mushrooms and that sort of thing in some of their rituals, we think. Again, they're all very hazy history, before something jumps down my throat. But the the assumption was that the berserkers were probably amped up on something. And you picture the biggest, fiercest warriors. You gave them all the drugs you could get your hands on. And then you sent them running in at the front, which is very similar, actually, to the uh, the Celts and the Scots, the mm-hmm. way they used to fight in that tribal Celtish way, often running in naked, war paint, all that sort of stuff, is very much tied in with that. So they, was, history. they were tripping balls as well as
1: hacking them off. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, very good. Yeah,
0: <laughs> And if your balls were long enough, tripping over their own balls. <laughs> oh, and yeah, um, swords as well. So I'm a big fan of the art of sword fighting or the art of medieval combat in general. Uh, Viking swords certainly did exist. They did use swords. However, the axe was way, way more common. A couple of reasons for this that are um, sort of floated out there. In that, number one, I mean, in order to make an axe, all you need is a bit of wood and a small bit of steel on the end. And if you look at um, examples of what people are purporting to be. good examples of viking axes it's actually a very small head on the end of the axe Mm. those big great axes when you think of vikings you think of huge axes like the big double-sided ones yeah definitely did exist but they would be given to the most fierce warriors simply because steel at that point was very very hard to make especially good steel the vikings made very very good steel but it was very expensive to make and therefore would only be given to the greatest and highest of warriors so the great Viking warriors, I mean, people high up in the chain of command, etc., would have had swords, and there are definitely examples of that. But primarily, it would be axes with actually surprisingly small heads. What was amazing, and there's a multiple accounts of this, is just how proficient Vikings were with those small axes. They're very good at getting them over the top of a shield, and then pulling the shield down with the corner of the axe, and then thrusting back up again. So the Anglo-Saxon armies, they had uh, more wealth behind them. And many more swords and that sort of thing in usage, and plate armor and more chainmail and that sort of thing. But they were absolutely overtaken by these madmen running in in furs with what were essentially tiny axes. But they were so proficient and skilled and fearsome with them, and their tactics were so good. I mean, that's the whole shield wall thing that comes from ancient Greece. Yeah, the the Vikings were so tactically proficient that they could use these tiny axes to incredible effect. So when you think of a Viking army invading somewhere, don't think horned helmets and huge battle axes. Think furs, think leather, think small axes, and but just think ferocity. That was the thing about the Vikings. They were so fucking fierce. They ran in with such zeal that it just scared the shit out of any <coughs> army that, yeah. that came across. So yeah, when you uh, think of uh, Vikings and Viking swords as well, yes, they had swords, but actually were a hell of a lot less common. And, and here's me being a total fucking nerd, and I know I'm banging on now, Another part of that is that if you give someone a sword and give them no training, they are very likely to lop one of their own fucking limbs off. (laughs) Whereas axes are quite easy to use. Axes are forgiving. You can miss with an axe. And if you hit yourself, yeah, you'll cause yourself a horrible injury. But hey, hey, if you hit yourself with a sword, however, uh, very, very, very bad things happen. So there's that whole element tying in there as well. And I realised, by the way, that I am a boring nerd. <laughs> anyway, there's my little bit of uh, Viking slash medieval history there. Uh, yeah, we're off to go to premium territory, where we've actually got... I mean, Liam, you're doing Troll Hunter. Yeah. This is a very Nordic pair of Absolutely, podcasts.
1: Absolutely, yeah, you know, um, yeah. It's a weird bit of um, coincidence.
0: Speaking right to my heritage here. So, yeah, <laughs> please do consider doing the premium podcast. Uh, check out our Patreon page. You can subscribe to... Actually, I've noticed the other day Patreon have now started charging tax um, on the fees. So we've gone up from five bucks a month to six bucks a month currently. I'm going to have a fiddle with the numbers on that one and see what we can work out that works financially for us because I think five bucks is a better figure. They're basically adding on the tax their end rather than us taxing ourselves our end. So I think we can afford to drop that Patreon back round to where it should be, five bucks for four podcasts a month.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, you know,
0: when you... Well, basically, when we collect the money on our end, we get we have to do our taxes anyway. Yeah. So the fact that it's being taxed beforehand means that's fine. We can drop it down. So I'm sorry if all of a sudden you've got a six bucks a month statement <laughs> coming through. <laughs> I get it sorted. Yeah, we're gonna, we're going to drop that back to five bucks. So five bucks a month, um, a four extra podcasts every month with pretty much more of the same except we go a little bit more in depth and we have a bit more fun with it. We bash through the reviews on this one. So yeah, apologies if you suddenly be charged six bucks a month. I don't know, we'll send you a sticker or something. <laughs> like, what, what do you want? What do you want out of us? Tell us, guys. But yeah, uh, anyway, thank you very much, Liam, for joining me. Thank you very
1: much indeed, dude. And thank you, everyone, for listening.
0: Yeah, and hopefully you'll join us on the premium. If not, we will see you next week for another free podcast. Probably not Norse themed.